Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be talking about the influence that the Roman Republic and classical republicanism had on our constitutional system of government. Hey, greetings. Welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Locking Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. If you are new to the program, I especially would like to welcome you. This is the podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events in law, politics, and culture. Now, today is going to be part two in my series, No Place Like Rome. Now, this is a topic request I got from a viewer you can see part one by following the little card I will put in the upper right-hand corner of this video right about now. And if you're watching the audio-only version of this podcast, uh, you can find a link to that first part down in the description. Now, I want to say thank you again to whoever sent me a suggestion. It was a great topic. It is one that I am really excited to talk to you about. Now, in the last video, I talked about the influence that the Roman Republic had on the founders, speaking of them more individually, uh, what the influence was. Today, we will be looking at the influence the Roman Republic had on our system of government. Real quick before we get started, let me remind you guys that if you have a topic suggestion you would like to see me cover on the show, you can let me know by leaving a comment in a video or by sending me an email to categoricalimperatives at gmx.com. Also, down in the description, you will find links to the show's new homepage, as well as the different places where you can find this show. I upload uh, audio and video versions to a number of different sites. And you can also find links to places where you can go and support the show, such as becoming a patron over on Patreon, if you are so inclined. Uh, you will also find links to uh, articles that I regularly publish covering many different areas of law and politics for different places such as the Libertarian Institute, the Tenth Amendment Center, the Mises Institute, uh, and I occasionally self-publish over on Substack as well. So today we're going to be talking about the influence of the Roman Republic and classical republicanism uh, and the influence that they had on the creation of our constitutional system of government. Now, almost everyone in the 18th century, and especially in America, agreed that there had been a flowering of Republican self-government and civic virtue in classical antiquity. This was a flowering which loomed as almost a heroic standard for succeeding ages, or at least that's how they saw it. And the continuing weight of this classical Republican heritage is seen throughout places such as the Federalist Papers by virtue of the fact that the authors sign every paper Publius, invoking over and over, more than 85 times, the name of one of the two leading founders of the Roman Republic, Publius Valerius Publicoa, a hero who is celebrated in one of Plutarch's most famous biographies. And in fact, the very practice of writing under a pseudonym was itself a reflection of the admiration for the tradition of the Roman Republic, this kind of noble anonymity and submerging oneself as an author behind a pen name uh, and taking 
classical public figures' names was very common practice. So we will be seeing uh, writings from people such as Brutus, Cato, Candidus, Cincinnatus, and Cornelius. Now, this is also a very important point, is, and one that I think is really rarely mentioned. Now, when it is, it's certainly never really expounded upon very much. But when it comes to the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, what we see is the Anti-Federalists, who uh, were the opponents of the proposed Constitution, tend to speak as conservatives who don't see the issue as a lack of energy or power in the existing government as much as a decline in civic virtue. The kind of civic virtue which was an absolute cornerstone of the Roman Republic. Whereas, the Federalists, or the defenders of the proposed Constitution, tend to speak as innovators. Now, this is true most immediately and obviously in that the Anti-Federalists argue that there is no need for a completely new Constitution to replace the existing one. Though they will readily acknowledge the Articles of Confederation do need some substantial revision, the Anti-Federalists call for some enhancements of the powers of the central government under the Articles, but they will insist that the basic idea of the existing Constitution, its underlying truly federal principles, are essentially fine and indeed embody a, pro a proper, limited idea of central government powers, maintaining a true balance of power between both the central government and state governments, and a proper balance of power of the state governments amongst themselves. And this limitation and balancing of powers they charge has simply been lost sight of in the proposed Constitution. So, as the anti-federalist speaker Gilbert Livingston said in the debates at the New York Ratifying Convention, True it is, sir. There are some powers wanted to make this glorious compact complete, but sir, let us be cautious that we do not err more on the other hand by giving power too profusely when perhaps it will be too late to recall it. And the Pennsylvania writer who calls himself a federal Republican commenting on the clause in the proposed Constitution, which gives Congress the power to, as the document says, levy and raise taxes to provide for the common defense and general welfare, says, Our situation taught us the necessity of enlarging the powers of Congress for certain national purposes. Where the deficiency was experienced, had these and these only been added, experience itself would have been an advocate for the measure. But in the proposed Constitution, there is an extent of power in Congress of which I fear neither theory nor practice will evince the propriety or advantage. Now, the, the Federalists, in contrast, stand for abandoning the existing Constitution and its basic federal principles in order to substitute something dramatically different and unprecedented. In the words of Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 23, there is an absolute necessity for an entire change in the first principles of the system. Now, against this kind of thinking, the Anti-Federalists tend to argue that the chief source of the present troubles is not mainly the bad design of the existing Constitution, but rather a decline in civic virtue and moral spirit among the American people in the years since the Revolution. 
Thus, Samuel Adams, or possibly a follower of his, writing under the pen name of Candidus, says, We are too apt to charge misfortune to the want of energy in our government, misfortunes which we have brought upon ourselves by dissipation and extravagance. And the Anti-Federalists see the proposed Constitution as doing little to remedy this more important moral decline among the people, and they believe, if anything, it will likely make things worse. And this, the Anti-Federalists stress on the importance of civic virtue in the populace, signals the more profound level of the conservative stance of the Anti-Federalists. They charge that the proposed Constitution is too great a departure from the old classical principles of Republican government. And in reply to this charge, the Federalists show themselves to be proud radicals in that they proudly acknowledge what their proposed Republic is, is of a dramatically new kind without precedent in human history. What's more, Madison and his allies dare to argue it's precisely the innovativeness of the proposed constitutional republic that is a good argument for it, because, he says, this signals the fact that this new type of republic will not have the vices that have always haunted republican governments of previous times and places. As Madison puts it in paper 37, when he's beginning to give an overview of the whole new proposal, the novelty of the undertaking immediately strikes us. It has been shown in the course of these papers that the other confederacies which could be consulted as precedents have been vitiated by erroneous principles and can therefore furnish no other light than that of beacons which give a warning of a course to be shunned without pointing out that which ought to be pursued. And is this aspect of the proposed constitution, its departure, from the major traditional agreed-upon principles of republicanism that I want to focus on today first and foremost, because this will bring into focus what were the deepest issues in this great debate. These were the issues concerning the very nature of sound republicanism, republican liberty, and self-government. A good starting point is what we see leaping out at us from the start of Hamilton's Ninth Federalist Paper. Right there, we find an unabashed and sweeping condemnation of the great examples and principles of classical republicanism, that heroically virtuous form of self-government that had characterized the Greco-Roman world in its best and most famous moments. To that, Hamilton says, It is impossible to read the history of the petty republics of Greece and Italy without feeling sensations of horror and disgust at the distraction by which they were kept continually agitated, and at the rapid succession of revolutions by which they were kept in a state of perpetual vibration between extremes of tyranny and anarchy. If momentary rays of glory break forth from the gloom, while they dazzle us with a transient and fleeting brilliance, they, at the same time, admonish us to lament the vices of government that should pervert the direction and tarnish the luster of those bright talents and exhausted endowments for which the favored soils that produced them have been so justly celebrated. If it had been found impracticable, Hamilton goes on, to have devised models of a more perfect structure than those ancient Greek and Roman republics, 
the enlightened friends of liberty would have been obliged to abandon the cause of that species of government as indefensible. Now, this severe attack on the classical Republican tradition is continued by Madison in the next tenth paper and carried on still further by both Madison and Hamilton in papers 16 through 20 as well as elsewhere. And to grasp the bold character of this attack on the classical tradition, we have to recognize the awesome significance for everyone at the time of the founding that the classical republicanism had. And this was true among Americans as well as Europeans in the 18th century. Now, the most authoritative model of republicanism in previous history had been this Greco-Roman experience of self-government, whose legacy we find often invoked during the revolution as a source of inspiration and guidance. For example, one story that I told in our last episode was about how, in the depths of the terrible winter at Valley Forge, George Washington had rallied morale by having Addison's great tragedy of the Roman hero Cato presented to his starving troops. And that throughout his life, Washington spoke of a deep inspiration by the Roman Republican models of heroic leadership, and Washington was not exceptional in this. Yet even when Hamilton and Madison embrace this common practice and thus signal that they do share, to some extent, in the common respect for the classical Republican tradition, they soon unveil, as we have now seen from paper number 9, their radical break with that tradition, and thus provoke some of the anti-federalist's deepest worries about the proposed new constitutional system. And to understand what it is that is at stake in this federalist break with classical Republicanism, and what these deep worries that arise are in the Anti-Federalists, we have to familiarize ourselves with what was the rich and complex meaning for most Americans in the 18th century of the classical Republican tradition. Now, the original understanding of classical Republicanism was available to Americans through the great classics of the ancient political theory written by philosophers such as Aristotle and Cicero, and through the great classics of ancient history such as those written by Thucydides, Plutarch, and Livy. But as Hamilton reminds us in this same Ninth Federalist paper from which I read just a moment ago, the classical Republican tradition had been given its most compelling recent formulation by the great French political philosopher Montesquieu in his masterpiece The Spirit of the Laws, which was published in 1748 and immediately translated into English. Now, the spirit of the laws quickly became the most important political work of political philosophy at the time, and its importance to the founders cannot be overstated. And this was the work of political philosophy that was most frequently cited as an authority among Americans at the time of the founding. Now, you need to understand, however, that Montesquieu, in his masterpiece, didn't simply restate the classical Republican tradition. In important ways, he actually reinterprets that tradition and gives the classical model uh, meant for Americans at the founding a new and complex meaning. So we need to understand precisely how Montesquieu's reinterpretation profoundly changes the meaning of the classical Republican models. So. What exactly, then, is the key difference between Montesquieu's reinterpretation and reanalysis and the original analysis provided by the classifer classical philosophers themselves 
writing about their world. Well, for one, in its original form, the political theory elaborated in the writings of the great Greco-Roman political philosophers and historians, Republican government had been understood in much more aristocratic than democratic terms. Republics at their best were understood to be shaped by and for an elite, but not an elite defined by money or wealth. Instead, an elite genuinely dedicated to wise and sometimes heroic civic virtue, generously preoccupied with a, pol with a politics of caring for the welfare of the whole community. Now, this welfare was defined more in spiritual than material terms, and thus an elite which conceived of its highest task as leading the community in cultivating a refined life of the mind centered on public communal religious worship and celebration and reflection in great public religious festivals and such as produced the magnificent Greek and Latin tragedies and comedies. So the aristocracy's economic basis was not meant to be commercial or business or banking, but instead inherited farmland and farming property of a kind that affords leisure without tempting to acquisitiveness or materialistic love of money. They held that the life of virtue led by civic leaders was understood not only or even mainly as a life of service to the community, to the people, and the supreme goal of politics itself was understood to be neither the promotion of the interests of the rich and their property and wealth, nor the promotion of the ordinary person's desires for security and liberty and prosperity. Instead, the exercise of the public and private virtue was conceived in itself as the highest end or purpose of the community. The life of virtue, both civic and intellectual, was held to be itself the peak of human flourishing and the purpose of the very best Republican community. Yet, as a practical matter, the classical theorists recognized that in almost all actual situations, this high and noble aspiration had to be compromised, both in order to win the necessary support of the more materialistically minded commercial and business rich people, but also in order to gain the consent and the support of the numerically powerful poor and middle classes. In practice, it was understood that concern for virtue or human excellence did have to be diluted by concerns for wealth, freedom, and equality. So the best practical sort of republic was conceived in this classical theory as what was known as a mixed regime. Now, this referred to a republic that mixes and combines elements of aristocracy and democracy. By taking consider considerable power out of the hands of the moral elite and placing it in the hands of the majority of the populace. In the best version of this compromised mixed regime, the few of distinguished virtue had to share power with the many ordinary people and govern with their consent. But it was hoped without becoming the servants of the people. In the mixed regime, the great challenge to the moral elite was to resist or to try to elevate the ordinary people's tendency to debase virtue into something regarded not as an end, but rather as a mere means to popular prosperity and liberty and security. 
now there came a newer, I guess you could almost say Christianized version uh, of this original classical uh, conception that had been the dominant political outlook, uh, for example, of the New England Puritans, who were obviously a cornerstone of the American Republican tradition. Now, in more secular versions, the classic mixed regime is articulated very well by Thomas Jefferson in a famous letter to John Adams, written near the end of their lives, where Jefferson says as follows. I agree with you, he writes to Adams, that there is a natural aristocracy among men. The grounds of this are virtue and talent. There is also an artificial aristocracy founded on wealth and birth, without either virtue or talent. The natural aristocracy I consider as the most precious gift of nature for the instruction and trust of government and society. May we not even say, he writes, that the form of government is best which provides the most effectually for a pure selection of the natural aristoi into the offices of government. The artificial aristocracy is a mischievous ingredient in government, and provision should be made to prevent its ascendancy. I think the best remedy is to leave to the citizens the free election and separation of the real aristoi from the pseudo-aristoi, of the wheat from the chaff. And in general, they will elect the real good and wise. Now, Montesquieu, in contrast to all this, had argued that the true virtues of the classical republics were more popular egalitarian, as he put it. Montesquieu contended against Aristotle and Cicero, as well as Thucydides and Plutarch, that the classical republic was at its best democratic, Montesquieu said, rather than aristocratic. Montesquieu insisted that the classical republic put supreme power in the hands of the assembly of all citizens meeting frequently to pass by majority vote the fundamental laws and to serve as mass popular juries in court trials and thus to control the judiciary, and also to elect and later to pass judgment on administrative officers who were understood to be the people's public servants. Such a democracy, Montesquieu pointed out, must be small enough so that the people can assemble, and more importantly, small enough so that those who stand for election to office are familiar to and resemble and remain under the close scrutiny of the rest of the populace. Even more important than smallness of size, Montesqu Montesquieu stressed, a true democracy requires in all its ordinary citizens an intense public spirit. Each and every citizen must be willing to devote considerable time and energy to the expense, to public service, to long meetings, to elaborate discussions, to important committee work, and so on. And Montesquieu calls such virtue in the people the very principle, as he puts it, or the spring of democracy. And Montesquieu explains that this democratic virtue requires among citizens a deep spirit of kinship or fraternity. And such genuine fraternity requires a homogeneity in the way of life of the inhabitants. 
Only persons, he argues, who share the same education, the same family mores, the same economic status, the same religion, can look upon another with an authentic sense of brotherhood and sympathy and empathy. So, virtue, he is arguing, is the love of equality, meaning the love of like for like. The love of and for a society that prevents sharp class distinctions or pronounced diversity and achieve business of such a democratic community, he argues, by legislating this morality, uh, a moral ethos, and requiring, through all sorts of social pressures, including coercion, a constant moral education of adults as well as children, requiring all citizens to conform to the ethos of this egalitarian civic virtue. And this requires a single established religion uniting the society spiritually. Now, the classical Republican ideal, especially in its new Montesquieuian democratic version, was held in the highest honor, especially by the Anti-Federalists, who appealed to key elements of the Montesquieuian version of this classical ideal as a standard by which to judge and condemn the proposed Constitution, and its very unclassifiable underlying vision of Republican life. But... I feel I must hasten to add, add that the classical Republican ideal, even in this newer, more democratic Montesquieuian version, was not simply or unreservedly embraced by almost ever, anyone in America in 1787, including the Anti-Federalists. So it's actually this deep ambivalence to the classical Republican ideals that make the Anti-Federalist outlook so complicated. Sometimes, to be sure... Leading anti-federalists do speak in a very classical-sounding term, such as when the anti-federalist writer who calls himself Brutus says in his seventh essay, We ought, he says, to furnish the world with an example of a great people who, in their civil institutions, hold chiefly in view the attainment of virtue and happiness amongst ourselves. But it's more characteristic of the Anti-Federalists, including Brutus, to speak of the chief goal of government as being the security of rights and liberties in an individualistic and what we might today even call a libertarian sense, meaning rights and liberties for individuals to pursue their own private happiness as each wishes, especially through the acquisition of more and more private property, through commerce as well as farming, free from government or community supervision and interference. And if you remember from the last episode, one point that I made was that when they talked about liberty in classical republicanism, they didn't necessarily see it in this same light of natural rights and individual liberties. So that, and I encourage you to go back and watch the past video to truly understand what I mean here. But essentially, there is a, though, though, Individual rights and natural rights are seen as part of civic virtue uh, and what make good government. They aren't specifically invoked in the classical republic tradition, and that is a deviation that we only start to find uh, in the Enlightenment era reimagining of classical republicanism. But anyways, I, I, I guess in other words, the Anti-Federalists shared with the Federalists a vision of America 
and its future that would be unlike the classical ideal in that they envisage the future country as being much larger in scale than any classical republic, much more commercial and economically growth-oriented, and much more individualistic, more liberal, even more libertarian, you might say. And yet, the anti-federalists continued to think, at the risk of some deep inconsistency, that precisely in order to protect this more individualistic liberty, major aspects of the classical ideal needed to be preserved and fostered, aspects that would be abandoned or lost in the constitutional order proposed by the Federalists, or at least so they fear. Now, what most deeply distinguishes the anti-Federalist outlook from the classical Republican ideal in both its original and its new Montesquieuian form is that the anti-federalists tend to see politics less as a positive good, less an attractive field for, I guess you could say, moral fulfillment, and much more as almost a necessary evil required to protect the personal liberty of individuals who exercise their liberty largely in more private pursuits, especially the pursuit of economic gain. What's more, the anti-federalists are unclassified in the degree to which they see government and participation in politics as intrinsically dubious or even possibly corrupting. Because they see humans as by nature very prone to use whatever power they have to seek more and more power, power is likely to be used to exercise exploitative control over others. As one anti-federalist writer who called himself John DeWitt after the famous Dutch classical Republican said, The more we examine the conduct of those men who have been entrusted with the administration of governments, the more assured we shall be that mankind have perhaps in every instance abused the authority vested in them or attempted the abuse. And Brutus issues a similar judgment based on the lessons of the Old Testament, but precisely on the basis of this and classical degree of distrust of leaders or elites in politics and government. The anti-federalists seem to think that the classical ideas of the need for civic virtue in the populace amongst ordinary citizens and the need for direct popular participation in government and the need to be kept close to and dependent on the people under their direct popular control were all essential to prevent what would otherwise be a steady drift towards oligarchic or aristocratic oppression by whatever elite holds government office. So as the anti-federalist writer who calls himself Sentinel says in his first letter, a Republican or free government can only exist where the body of the people are virtuous and where property is pretty equally divided. In such a government, the people are the sovereign and their sense or opinion of the criterion for every public measure. For when this ceases to be the case, the nature of the government is changed and an aristocracy, monarchy, or despotism will rise in its ruin. Now, the anti-federalists are concerned, then, for the classical Republican ideal of citizen virtue and popular participation in government 
and control over government, not in the way the classics themselves were. These virtues are not seen chiefly as a good for their own sake or as ends, but instead mainly as means to the necessary protections and support of this more individualistic right and freedom. Freedom of a largely non-political, commercial, and private nature. So it's on this basis of a very qualified appeal to classical republicanism that the anti-federalists oppose the new constitution. They are worried above all because they see the proposed constitution as threatening individual rights and freedoms by excessively centralizing government power, making it too unified and unchecked, and by removing government too far from local direct control of the people as citizens, making the constitution likely to foster an elite and aristocratic government that would more and more intrude with domineering effect in people's lives, with the people becoming more and more like servile servants rather than active, independent power shares. What's needed instead, in the anti-federalist view, is rather, excuse me, is maintaining a true confederacy of a smaller more localized, more classical, and more participatory democracy. Therefore, George Mason put it this way. The very idea of converting what was formerly a confederation to a consolidated government is totally subversive to every principle which has hitherto governed us. It is ascertained by history. He says that there never was a government over a very extensive country without destroying the liberties of the people. History, also supported by the opinions of the best writers, show us that popular governments can only exist in small territories. Is there a single example, he challenges the Federalists, on the face of the earth to this? Does anything support a contrary opinion? Was there ever an instance of a general national government extending so extensive a country abounding in such a variety of climates, etc., where the people retain their liberty. Now, I want to elaborate more fully uh, the rather complex Republican vision for America and the anti-federalist advocates showing more concretely exactly how the anti-federalists drew upon and adapted and integrate key elements of the classical ideal. And then uh, I'll turn to begin laying out a Federalist response. All right. So this part of the video is going much longer than I had anticipated. Uh, I'm only about halfway through right now. Uh, and this seemed a good place to stop. So I won't be finishing this episode here today. I will be posting the next part uh, in another day or two. So I apologize for that. Uh, but in the meantime, make sure that you subscribe to the channel. So when the new video comes out, you will be informed. Uh, and of course, all the usual stuff. If you uh, like this video, please take a second and hit that thumbsy upy button. Uh, if you disliked it, you can feel free to hit that thumbsy downy button if you want. Uh, leave me a comment. I always, always love hearing uh, comments from you guys. And uh, yeah, that's about it. I will be back with the 
uh, next episode in a couple days here. So until then, I guess all that's really left to do is sign off and say this has been me, Lockheed and Liberal, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about classical republicanism. And of course, as always, De Linda has Carthago.